Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Romans. We're continuing our Romans series. One of the values we have as a church is week after week when we gather for our weekly public worship services, weekly gatherings, we want to spend some time studying God's Word together. And so uh, we typically work through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Romans right now, Romans chapter 8. Sometimes we'll do a topical series, but we always want to learn from God uh, according to his word. What does he have to say in the scriptures? Uh, many of the voices in our culture would say that God is silent. Um, you'll see this in art and literature and music, wishing that God would speak to us. We believe that God has spoken to us. He's spoken to us in his word, and he's spoken to us by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So we want to crack it open week after week. Uh, we're in Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be on page 944, 945 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chair. So I would encourage you to open one of those up and follow along with us. We're calling it this week, Formed Like Christ. One of the central metaphors, one of the central pictures in this passage is that we are shaped to be like Christ. So that is the goal. Uh, We saw last week the sufferings that we endure are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And part of that glory that God is going to reveal in us and through us is he's making us like Jesus. Um, We're headed for a future where we will no longer be completely obsessed with self, but we will be generous and kind, uh, and we'll have a glory like Jesus's. We'll look more and more like Jesus. That's, That's the goal of this life. There is suffering in this world, but that suffering God is using to shape us and make us more like his son, Jesus. I had the opportunity to shape a sculpture of clay when I was a senior in high school. I was in an art class, um, and I did a lot of sketching as a kid, as a teenager. Loved to draw, but I'd never done a sculpture before, so this was a very new experience for me. It was a lot of fun. I was surprised at how long the process was. Uh, We spent weeks and weeks and weeks shaping that lump of clay. Um, We had these special tools that we would cut and scrape the edges of the clay with. Now, of course, the lump of clay had no feelings, But if it did have feelings, I'm sure the lump of clay would tell you that at times I was cruel to that lump of clay, that at times I was probably uh, making it hurt and uh, making it squirm. And so there's a picture there that Paul's going to use later on in Romans 9, where he's going to compare God to a potter shaping clay. And in this section, he's going to say he's forming us, he's shaping us to look like Jesus. That's That's the goal of this life. That's where everything is headed. So let's look at the text together, verses 26 through 30. Really big stuff here. So so if you would just pray that God would speak to you clearly uh, what he wants to say to you out of this text. I've been praying this week that God would give me clarity to to help you see what's most important here because it's one of those where you could could kind of do a sermon on each verse. You know, there's just so much in the section. Uh, So let's start in verse 26. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So again, that same ending where we ended last week with that that focus, that future that we're headed to of of being glorified, of receiving a, a similar weight that God himself has, we'll get to be one with him. We'll get to be free from sin. Uh, We'll get to be free of the brokenness of these bodies. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. That's the future we're headed for. Let me pray and ask God to help us to to receive his word. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning and that you would open our eyes to see who you are according to your word. Uh, We have our own ideas. We have our own thoughts. Um, The culture tells us different things. We pray that we would listen to you, to your word, that you would guide us. You'd help us to see what you have to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the goal in this life is that we would be formed like Christ, that we would be shaped more and more to look like him. And so the first thing that I want us to see is that he is shaping us, he is forming us, he's sculpting us even in our prayers. He's shaping our prayers, he's forming our prayers, which might sound weird that there's some actor on the outside of us working even through our own prayers, but I think Paul is telling us this to reassure us. Because if you're like me, sometimes your prayers are hindered. Sometimes you don't pray when you should. And here the text is telling us that that God's even there. He's even there in our weakness and our brokenness and our feeling inadequate and our feeling like we don't know what to say or have the right words or maybe don't even feel like praying. God helps us in our weakness. The Spirit is there with us. Look at how he says it in in 26. He starts with an important transition word there. He says, likewise. Do you see that? Verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise. So we just saw last week this whole uh, section on how the sufferings that we go through now are not worth comparing to the, the glory, this amazing future we're headed for, and how all of creation is longing to see God shape us and uh, glorify us and make us look like Jesus, the revealing of the sons of God, the future resolution of all things. All of creation is longing to see that day. That's where we're headed. And so we have hope now. We dig into the reality that Jesus can be trusted even in the midst of, of bad stuff that we're going through. And in all that, that gives us what he said a couple of verses ago, hope, right? That gives us the ability to hang on. That gives us the ability to Dig into Jesus when everything is falling apart. And I want you to know, specifically, I've been praying for those of you who are in the middle of that this week, because I know in a congregation our size, um, some of us are having the best week we've ever had, and some of us are having the worst week we've ever had. And so I, I know that. I don't know which one of you are going through that, but I know some of you are going through that. You're going through something you never thought you would go through, or going through something worse than you ever thought you would go through. I don't, I don't know where you are on that scale, but know that, that I've prayed for you this week, but also know that Paul is saying that we have a God, we have a God who is pursuing you even in the midst of your pain, and he's there with you, and he's giving you his spirit, and his spirit is groaning along with you in the middle of those trials, shaping your prayers. When you don't know how to pray, when you're thinking, God, this hurts so bad, I don't want to pray because I'm afraid I won't come out of it. Or, God, this hurts so bad, I'm mad at you, and I don't know what to say. Or, God, this hurts so bad, I'm confused, and I don't know how to think properly to pray. In those circumstances, the Spirit shapes your prayers. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That can also be translated sickness. 
our smallness, our beat-upness, our sufferingness. He helps us in the middle of, of what you're going through right now. He helps you in your weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's interesting here, commentators note that he says we don't know how to pray as we ought, which implies that there is an ought to with prayer, right? There are, there are things we should pray for. I think a general category that you can file that under is Jesus repeatedly says that we should pray according to God's will, right? We should shape ourselves more and more according to God's wishes. As, as modern American people, we're often very focused on our own will and our own desires and our own uh, free uh, thoughts and, and how we think and how we see the world. And here he's saying that there is a way to pray. Jesus says elsewhere, we should pray according to God's will. And so that can be overwhelming. And we just think, well, how, how, do, I know, how do I know if I'm doing that, right? Well, you can study God's word. You can get to know God. There are steps you can take, right, to get to know God more. You can pray scripture you can pray according to what he's already said, then you know you're praying according to his will. But, but Paul kind of lays down a trump card here and he says, even if you don't know, the Spirit will help you, right? So on the one hand, it's scary. There is an ought to, right? There is a right way to pray. There is a God's will. There is a, there is a truth and non-truth out there, right? And there's a sense in which we shouldn't pray crazy non-scriptural prayers. We should pray according to Scripture. And we should learn it and we should understand his will for our lives. But he's saying... Yeah, there's going to be multiple days, multiple moments in your life where you don't know what that is. Either out of your ignorance or out of your sin or out of your just weakness or out of your sadness or whatever it is. You're just not going to know how to pray. And the Spirit helps you in those moments. I hope you see that this is not to put you on the sidelines and make you passive. This actually drives us to prayer, right? This enables us to see, okay, he's with me. I want to I pray more. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, obviously, um, Paul is picking up the language from, from last week, right? So this is all one letter. When Paul writes this, it's kind of meant to be read at once. I encourage you to just read it all at once, the whole letter of the book of Romans, right? So last week, we had this groaning, how we groan because we're not there yet. Creation groans because creation isn't fixed yet. And here he says the Spirit groans. So it's this third groaning. We groan because our life is broken. Creation groans because creation is broken. The Spirit comes alongside us, and the Spirit groans too, but the Spirit is groaning us towards conformity with God's will. Do you see that? So it's beautifully kind of picking up that brokenness we saw last week and saying, yeah, the Spirit's in there with you, man. The Spirit is alongside you. The Spirit is in your heart groaning, but it's this perfect, God-centered Christ shaping, forming us to be like Jesus groaning. Because we all, we all have seen this kind of honesty about the struggle we're going through that is fruitful and unfruitful, right? I have days when I'm honest about my pain, and it's fruitful, and it helps me move towards God in prayer. And then I have days when I'm honest about my pain, and it's not really helping anybody, right? It's just griping. And it's hard as a person to know the difference between those two. And so I groan. Maybe when I groan, I'm griping. I don't know. Creation groans. Who knows about creation? That's confusing. It's not even really a person. And then we come to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit groans, but it's a perfect groaning. And the Holy Spirit is doing that in your heart to God, praying for you, around you, forming, shaping your prayers to God. It's this beautiful picture. It uses the word intercede, which is like a lawyer-type word or like someone going to bat for you, right? Spirit's interceding for you, standing up for you. 
It's cool because later on in Romans 8, we're told that Jesus intercedes for us in the throne room in in the uh, face of the Father. So it's this cool dual picture of how Jesus intercedes for us in heaven right now, and the Spirit intercedes for us in our hearts before God. So the Spirit's talking to the Father. uh, Jesus is talking to the Father. There's this Trinitarian communion between us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where God is justifying us and glorifying us and all these things that we're going to see later on in the text, bringing our prayers before God. So the Spirit's helping us. Spirit's helping us. Groaning with two, uh, groanings that are too deep for words. Uh, literally, it's like words that you can't hear, or what are, words that can't be uttered. And I think basically what that's saying, the, the most simple translation of that would just be, uh, you don't hear it out loud, right? You don't hear this out loud. There's not like this voice, but, but there is prayer happening between you and God by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So he who searches hearts is, is a phrase, a catchphrase, going back to the Old Testament that just means God, right? God is the one who searches hearts. We don't even know our own heart. God searches hearts. God sees the heart. We look at the outside of man, but God looks at the heart, right? There's all kinds of language in the Old Testament that, that echoes that. And so the one who searches hearts, well, that's God. God knows the mind of the Spirit. Earlier, he was saying that we should mind the Spirit, and now it's like that's flipped around, and the Spirit is minding us to God. It's like he's taking those phrases and flipping around. Right before, he was saying, fix your mind on what the Spirit wants and is doing and is reminding you that God loves you and you belong to him and you're his child. And here it says, there are going to be days when you can't remember that. There are going to be days in your weakness where you can't think straight, where you don't want to talk to God, where you're sad, where you're mad, where you're confused, where you don't know what to say. And the Spirit is going to mind you to God. So on the one hand, it's an exhortation. Mind the Spirit, right? We could see it earlier in in, uh, chapter 8. Paul's telling us, mind the things of the Spirit. And here he's saying the Spirit is is minding you to God. Flipping that around. Taking your requests to God. Taking those groans and shaping those, forming those to make you more like Jesus and in conformity to his will. We just saw this uh, cool movie Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if y'all have seen this one before. Saw it when I was a senior in high school and then got to see it again. Uh, the new version. And there's this really cool scene that I really loved. It was very poignant. We can you know, debate about whether it was a good movie or a terrible movie or whatever. Uh, the music is definitely catchy. Been singing it all weekend. But there's this great scene. The, the principal character, Belle, or Beauty, her father is an artist and a, a tinkerer, you know, like he makes little things. Um, he, he makes little machines and makes little artistic devices and things. And so he's working on this beautiful little intricate thing that he's building. And he needs help. And he doesn't, even, he doesn't even have to say what he's looking for. He's like, I need, and his daughter hands him the right tool. And then it happens again. He's like, and now I need, and she hands him a tool. And he's like, no, that's not, oh, yeah, that is it, right? And I just thought that was a beautiful picture of this perfect synchronicity that that Paul's describing here, where the Spirit knows what we need to pray for, even when we don't need, we don't know what to ask for, right? So in this picture, it's a daughter that loves her father and knows even better than he knows in the moment which tool he needs, because she knows him so well and loves him so well. And of course, that's a, a pale comparison, but the Spirit knows you so deeply and knows you so well, knows exactly what you need in those moments when you don't know 
what you need. And so instead of, again, instead of this making us pray less, this, this should make us pray more. This should make us pray with boldness. Just, no, man, I can pray when I don't know how to pray. I can pray when I don't have memorized words. I can pray when I don't think it sounds right. I can pray when I don't feel like it, right? And, and there will be different reasons for different, uh, different people why we don't pray. I'm a very mind-oriented person, and I tend to not pray when I don't have life figured out. I tend to think I need to figure life out, and then when I've got life figured out, I can present myself to God as having things figured out and pray and talk to him, right? I want to clean myself up before I, I come to him. Or sometimes feelings. I can be a feeling-oriented person. I, I want to wait until I feel prayerful, and then I will pray to God in those prayerful feeling moments, worshipful. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is for you. Uh, maybe you have angry feelings that keep you from praying to God. Um, here, I think he's, he's saying that when you don't know the right words to pray, you should still pray because the Spirit's going to help you. The Spirit's going to clean that up for you. When you're mad and you don't feel like it's appropriate to talk to God because you've been taught, well, I can't be mad at God, well, you can take that to God and the Spirit will clean that up for you. When you don't feel worshipful or close, when you feel like God is distant, you can still talk to Him, knowing that the Spirit will groan to God on your behalf. The Spirit's going to help you in your weakness. So pray. He is going to form your prayers. So don't wait until your prayers are perfectly formed. Take your prayers to God now. Bring him, uh, the way I like to talk about this sometimes, is bring God your finger painting, right? Any of you ever uh, have little kids, or maybe you have a nephew or a niece, or maybe a kid in your class that, that makes, draws you something? And it's, it's kind of incomprehensible. Has that ever happened? You can't really tell what it is? Oh, what is it, right? That's so nice. And you appreciate it, right? You, you'll even put it on your fridge or put it on your wall. You don't necessarily know what it is. And, and you can talk to them and you can draw out of them what it is and what they meant and where their heart was when they made that. You can't necessarily make sense of it by itself, but you can make sense of it in relationship with that child, T- take your prayers to God. The Spirit, will, the Spirit will form your prayers, so pray. The next thing we see is that he's forming our pains. And really, we saw this last week, and so I'm importing the idea of pain and suffering into this verse. It was very clearly seen in the section last week. So if you're just here for this week, you didn't hear last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back, at least read the section before, or go back and listen to the sermon. But it talked about how the current sufferings we're going through are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. So this is all one flowing piece of work that Paul is writing here, and this, this is coming out of that. So he's been talking about how we're being shaped to be like Jesus in the midst of suffering and pain. And then he comes to this kind of what some people would say is a climactic verse of Romans 8. So Romans 8, 28 says it this way. Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, I'm just going to do an informal poll real quick. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that verse before. Okay, pretty much everybody. All things work out for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? I think if we really believe that he's forming our pains. It's a little catchphrase that they use in Celebrate Recovery. God never wastes a hurt. That 
even the bad stuff. The bad stuff's still bad stuff, right? Uh, theologian Michael Bird says, says it something like this. All things are not good. The things are not good. But God can take the bad things and he can work all things, good and bad, painful and joyful. He can take all those things and he can symphonically work those together for good. The Greek word is synergy. It's interesting, repeatedly in this section, there's this uh, prefix, S-Y-N, which means together, you know, like synthesis or synergy. Uh, The word help, how the Spirit helps us, it's this helping together word. It's got that on the front of it. Uh, This is synergy. God is working all things out. Later on, when it talks about forming, it's like this forming together. So there's this togetherness. He's He's like working the symphony, all these things that are going on in our life. They're crazy things, and they're noises that if you just were to isolate that sound in a symphony and just take that, and like you go listen to that kid practicing at home before the symphony starts, you're like, that sounds horrible. I don't want that in my symphony, right? But, but he works that in, and he makes something beautiful out of it. He makes something beautiful. We had this great worship jam in the park last night. I brought my saxophone because I thought maybe that would work. It didn't work with the saxophone. But God... God can work it out, right? God can work all things together. Sometimes we can't do that. We try to force things together and it doesn't work. But God is God, right? He is big enough that he can form even our pains into something good and beautiful. So again, hear me. I'm not saying your suffering is good. I'm saying that God is so good, he can work good out of your suffering. And so suffering stinks and we live in hope in reliance on God, that God, you love me, and you love the world, and you're glorious, and you're big, and somehow you're going to do something good and true and beautiful out of even these terrible things. And so again, just know that I'm, I'm praying for you, and I don't expect you, if you're in the middle of one of those worst things ever moments right now, I don't expect you to even immediately grasp that. I would just encourage you, last point, pray, and just say, God, will you, will you start revealing this to me? Will you start helping me to see this, that's a, that's a process, dealing with the pain in our life. Uh, Rick Warren wrote this uh, book that was really popular called The Purpose Driven Life. I almost forgot it. The Purpose Driven Life. In it, not the best book in the world, but really helpful because it says a lot of down-to-earth things, right? It has very down-to-earth language, so a lot of people love that book. And one of the things he says is that all of the trials that we go through are father-filtered. All the trials we go through are father-filtered. It's a great concept. They're all filtered through his hand, and he's shaping all these things for his glory, for our good, shaping us, forming us, sculpting us, making us look more like Jesus. I think we understand this uh, instinctively when it comes to uh, the painful things that we go through. I grabbed a picture here of somebody sweating after a run. Um, Some of you would say, yeah, that's not worth it. Some of us love to sweat, right? I mean, but that's just a simple illustration of a pain price we're willing to pay for something good, right? And so for those of you that are non-runners, I would say uh, maybe the illustration is you're willing to stay up all night to finish a good story, right? There's a pain price you're willing to pay to get to the glorious end. Maybe you're relational, and you're willing to go the extra mile with someone relationally because there's a pain price that you're willing to pay to, to get to a greater glory. So there's all kinds of ways that we're willing to do this, right? 
usually based on personality. For, for all different types of people, there's some sort of pain price you're willing to pay. And you're willing to put that in. You just know, yeah, it takes some pain to get to good things in life. And what I'm saying is even beyond those that you've already said you're willing to pay, there's more. And the pain prices that you're not willing to pay, that like me, I have those moments where I'm just crying to God saying, God, please make it stop. Even, even those, God, God can take those and work those out for his glory and for our good. And again, I don't, I don't expect that to be an, an easy to receive message, but I do believe it's true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we shouldn't allow pain to set us on the sidelines. I've noticed this in my own life where I try something, I take a risk, I step out and I do something new and I get smacked down for it. There's a part of me that that goes, oh, well, I should never do that again. Have you ever had that experience? Because that hurt. And of course, God uses that in the natural world to train us, right? Uh, When I was a little kid, I remember jumping off the roof, you know, 10 feet in the air. I'd roll on the ground. It would hurt. Tried it a few more times because I was a dumb little boy. And eventually I was like, that hurts. I'm not going to do that anymore, right? They're just experiences that you have in life that are painful that teach you that's not a good idea. And that's just natural, right? That's how the world works, But there are risks and big things that God wants you to do in your life and you try things and it hurts and sometimes that can shut you down. And what I'm I'm saying here is take risks, godly risks, right, appropriate risks, not just for selfishness, not just jumping off roofs. I'm saying for godly purposes, serving other people, loving other people, sacrificing your wants and your desires to put other people first. Those are godly risks that you can take, that you can step forward with. What, what are those things that God's calling you to in your life? Close your eyes for just a minute. You don't have to if you don't trust the next person next to you, but uh, maybe just squint, keep an eye on them. Just think, what, what God are you calling me to right now that I'm afraid of just because of pain, but maybe you, you really want me to go there. Maybe you really want me to go there. And if I really believe that all things work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, maybe I would step out in faith and go that direction. So again, it shouldn't be selfish things. It shouldn't be uh, just for you. It shouldn't be things that um, glorify you. This should be things that God's calling you to. You can open your eyes now. Maybe God will uh, demonstrate that to you. I'm praying that God would show us how he wants us to step out. I think it's also important that we notice here that it's a conditional phrase because this is a big coffee cup verse. This is a big, uh, we used to say coffee cup verses or Bumper sticker verses, now we say memes, right? You know what a meme is? It's like the things that uh, fly by on the computer screen, little pretty pictures with Bible verses and stuff. Um, It's conditional. It's not, it just works out for everybody no matter what, right? Read the verse. It's not all things work together for good, period, which is sad and scary because that's what we would prefer it to be. But it's all things work together for good. God is working, forming all things, even our pains, for good, for his glory, for our joy, if we love him and we are called according to his purpose. That's a condition. We'd say that condition is you belong to God. You are God's people. How do you know if you fit in that category? Well, I've I've said this in the past. It's not something we should anguish over. Generally, if you, if you don't care, you're probably not in that category, right? 
And generally speaking, if you care and want to be in that category, the Bible says by faith you can be in that category. You can just ask, and God will pull you into his people. You, you turn from sin and say, I don't want to trust in my sin anymore, God. I want to trust in you. But the whole flow, the sweep of Romans has been emphasizing that what Jesus did on the cross purchases all of this, accomplishes all of this, that Jesus took your sin on the cross and Jesus gives you his righteousness through his resurrection, his conquering sin and death once and for all. And so the Bible says that if you trust that reality, you're his, you, you belong to him, and then fruit will be born out of that. This kind of faith will start to grow where you actually trust him through difficult times. It can be baby steps, but we begin to walk in this new direction. So the goal of life is not to avoid pain, not to just manage pain, not to just not do something because it's painful, but to take the risks that God calls you to. So I think one example is forgiving people. Are there people in your life that God wants you to forgive? And you're avoiding that because it's painful. You're avoiding that because it's painful. God can take all things, even the painful process of of reconciliation, of forgiving someone you need to forgive. And he can shape that for his glory. Some people you can forgive that you shouldn't invite into your home, right? Some people you can forgive them, but you still lock the door. Make sure you keep that distinction. But God might be calling you to forgive some people. That can be painful, but God can work all things for good. Caring for people. Caring for difficult people. Are there difficult people in your life that God's calling you to care for? They're not convenient. Are there hard people that God's calling you to to care for? It can be painful, but God can work all things out for his good, for his glory. Giving of your own time, resources, money, convenience, sharing what you have, giving that for God's kingdom work on this earth. Is God calling you to give in some way? Your time, your effort, your energy, your resources. It can be painful, but God can use it for his good. The last thing that we see is he's forming our purpose. How much time do we have? Okay, he's forming our purpose. Verses 29 through 30. I would say because God is forming our purpose, because God gives us a purpose when we did not have a purpose before, because of that, we should move. And this is going to get into some hard stuff that talks about how God is sovereign over everything. Um, And I'm just going to set this up right now and say, uh, this is debatable. This is a thing that, that Christians debate over. And that's okay. We can still be friends and debate this topic. Okay? I just want to set that up up front. Of course, I think I'm right, but it's debatable. Okay? Martin Lloyd-Jones is a famous preacher in the 50s, 60s. Uh, he says this, Ultimately, the proof of a right approach to these doctrines is that you find in them the greatest urge to holiness and sanctification. So what he would say is if you really understand these doctrines correctly, if you understand this teaching, which is big and overwhelming and God is in control, that will actually urge you towards holiness and sanctification. That's what Lloyd-Jones says. So that's the goal. That's where we want to go, right? We want to obey Jesus, be more like him, be shaped, be conformed to his image. That's what it's going to talk about here. So verse 29 and 30, it says it this way. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's that kind of big idea of being formed, shaped, sculpted to be like Jesus so that Jesus would be the firstborn 
among many brothers. The word firstborn literally is a status, okay? We hear it and we fixate as modern people on born, right? Firstborn, born, born. Uh, In the Old Testament and in the first century New Testament world, firstborn was a status, the prince, okay? So we believe that Jesus is eternally God. He is part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are three uh, who's, but one what? Three persons, but one God. And that can be a confusing, hard thing to understand. Again, one of those things you don't, you don't just grasp the first time you hear it, but you just read the scripture, ask God to guide you. He'll give you more insight into how that, how that works. But here we see that Jesus is the firstborn and that status, the prince, among many brothers, because we're being shaped to be like him. And he says that uh, it's those he foreknew, he also predestined. So these are big words, and I want to take a minute to just unpack what do these words uh, mean. Foreknew, a lot of people take it as simple knowledge, because that's the way we use the word in, in uh, modern speaking. Knowledge is just a fact, like a, something you could pass on a test, multiple choice. But generally in the scripture, it means uh, intimate familiarity, um, and even implies love or delight, or enjoying something, right? Um, the easiest, most concrete example is Adam knew Eve and they had a child, okay? And so that's the way the word is used in Scripture. It's used for closeness and love. And so I would interpret this to mean that God foreloved us. And I would go back to the adoption metaphor that Paul's already used in Romans 8. Now again, this is, this is debatable, And so some people would say, I'll give the alternate view. Some people would say, God knows everything. He knows ahead who is going to choose him. So he looks ahead and he sees the choosers and then he chooses the choosers, right? And that, that's okay. Again, if you believe that, that's fine. I love you. We're friends. I don't agree with that, but, but that, that's a, that's a reasonable approach, right? That's a common way to understand this. I would say it's more like adoption because that's a metaphor he keeps using, right? He keeps talking about adoption and we're kind of this dirty kid in an alley that's not even necessarily beautiful. But he sees us there in in the muck and mire, and he's like, I love you. Beforehand, he looks at us, and he loves us ahead of time. And so those he foreknew, foreloved, foreenjoyed, those are the ones he predestined ahead of time, set a purpose for. And so he looks ahead, and he says, I love you, and he makes plans for us. And he adopts us, and he, he picks us up, cleans us off, and he brings us into his family because he loves us. So again, there's all kinds of now logical complications that come from that, right? And one of the biggest ones is the unfairness of if God chooses people to love, that means he not chooses people, right? Or unchooses people. There's all kinds of ways to say that. Damns people ahead of time somehow. You know, there's all kinds of weird logical chain reaction things that start to happen. All I would say is, I, I don't see verses that go down that trail. What I see is a verse that goes down this trail that says, if I know Jesus, God adopted me because he loves me. And that is for the purpose of reassuring me. It's not for the purpose of building this airtight, philosophical way of understanding the universe. It's to reassure me that I belong to Jesus. And I believe that's what he's trying to do here. And so he's talking to a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles, of Jews who are apt to think we're better than other people because of our DNA, 
our skin, our national heritage, right? And we have people that have that problem today. And they need to be reminded, no, God didn't pick you because of your skin. God picked you out of his love. He adopted you by his grace and his kindness, not because you were deserving, because you belong to a special tribe of deservingness. So that's the message to the Jews. And then to the Gentiles, who, when compared to the Jews, feel like we're outsiders, right? We're pagans. God doesn't care about us. He's saying, no, he cares about you. He loves you. He delights in you. He's adopted you. He's made you his child. So that's how I would understand these verses. Does that answer every objection? No. I don't feel, I don't feel the need to answer every objection, right? Just know this is debatable. People, Christian world, we can be friends. People at this church have different views on that. Some people say, God knows the future. He looks to the future, sees us choosing him. And then he goes back in time and he chooses us because we're going to choose, you know, and that's how people reconcile it. For me, I just go, no, he, he actually chose us. He, he just actually chose us. He actually predetermined and grabs hold of us, wakes us up, gives us life. There's different metaphors for that. So the metaphor that Paul's going to use, we're going to come back to this in Romans 9. We'll talk about it more. So he uses the potter's wheel. He says that we're clay and we're being shaped. And so because he talks about that in Romans 9, he's already using this phrase of forming us to be like Jesus. I'm going to use that image here and say it's kind of like that, right? Because he's saying he's forming us to be like Jesus here. Later on in Romans 9, Paul says God has the right as a potter to shape clay, to do what he wants to with us. And I would say God is shaping us and forming us, again, for good, for his glory, for our glory, for our joy. Does that cause us to have philosophical questions about how, how that can work and, and how does he do that? Yes. And I'm happy to talk to you more. When I say I don't have all the answers, I don't mean that I don't want to talk to you about it. I'd be happy to talk to you with about it, uh, go down those rabbit trails, talk about all the different, you know, there's multiple different ways of trying to reconcile this uh, in your head. I just am, am trying to stick with this, I think, the simplest interpretation of what the text says here. So verse 30, he says this. And those whom he predestined, lost my place, there it is. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is sometimes called uh, the golden chain. Um, I don't know why, I don't know if that helps you. Uh, Also, it's called the ordo salutis. I just try to kind of give you all some of this nerdy theology, you know, language, so you kind of know how people talk about this in, in old books. Ordo salutis literally means in Latin, the order of salvation. And so he's just kind of talking about this order, right? Those that God predestined, that means he also then later calls, where he says, hey, come to me, right? And so that's when we hear the gospel. And we say, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And those of us who believe, hear the calling of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus took our sin and gives us his life, it says he also justified. He made us righteous. We spent many chapters in Romans talking about that. Before God, you are seen as delightful and righteous because of what Christ did for you. He loves you. And then he says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's really fascinating here is Paul keeps talking about how that's where we're headed, right? We're headed to glory. We're headed to glory. We're headed to glory. And the glory is going to be so glorious that it's going to make all this junk okay. We're going through junk. I'm hurting. I'm crying. But I'm heading for glory. And he says, those who he's justified, that he's made right by Christ, He's also glorified. And you're like, wait, I'm not there yet, am I? He's using past tense language. 
In the Greek, it's called the aorist, which is not exactly past tense, but it might as well be because it's completed action. So he's using this grammatical way of saying, it's done. It's a done deal. Again, all of this is to show God sovereignly shaping and forming our lives for his glory and for our glory, for our good, for our joy. And it's, it's solid. It's something we can count on. And again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this doesn't make us lazy. This urges us to love God. That's what these doctrines are about. God has settled it. God has saved you, so you will run after him. God has glorified you, so you will pursue him. God loves you, so you will love him and you will love other people. That's where these doctrines are driving us and pushing us. And again, some of, the, some of the details of this are debatable items, but I hope you come away with the overarching picture of a God who loves you, of a God who loves you in an unstoppable way, and a God who is forming you to look more like Jesus so that this doesn't make you sit on the sideline. I have a purpose. Okay, since I have a purpose, I'll check out and not do anything in life. No, I have a purpose, so I'm going to play in the game. Matthew 25, Parable of the Talents, go read it this afternoon. The ones that see the master as generous spend their lives for him. The ones that think the master takes what doesn't belong to him, they recoil from the master. They bury their talent. Are you going to spend what you have for God's glory, or are you going to bury your talents? That's the question. And I think the linchpin is, do you see God as generously forming you for his purposes? There's this uh, great quote by Jack Miller. He talked about this debate of uh, how grace works, different theologians in the past debating grace. One of them says grace is like a parent uh, walking a toddler along and the toddler's walking. And, and Jack Miller said, well, I think it's, it's more like a caterpillar that's stuck in the middle of a ring of fire, some kind of forest fire, and there's fire all around it. And this little caterpillar's stuck in the middle. And the caterpillar can't get out. And it needs someone to come and grab it and pull it out. Miller says, when you recognize the desperate situation you're in, that's when grace becomes even more amazing. Like, oh, I, I couldn't save myself? I actually needed God to save me? That makes his salvation more amazing. We might quibble over language, we might quibble over words, but, but get the big picture here. The God of the universe has stooped into our world to save us. He placed our sins on Jesus on the cross. He gives us his righteousness. He's, he's pulling us up out of this fire for your joy, for his glory. Let me pray for us. We'll respond in worship. God, thank you that you love us so much that you would save us, that you would pluck us out of danger and out of pain. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work out all things for our good. We trust you to do that. We pray that we would know that we're your children by faith and what Jesus has accomplished for us and that that would work itself out in a reality of a changed life, that we would be urged towards holiness and sanctification, becoming more and more like you, being shaped into the image of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name.